Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Performance at the Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin, Ender King. Thanks for tuning in to episode 288 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this is a part two with Ender King following on from last week's episode around ACL and ACL rehab. So today we discuss more around hip and groin injuries. So we start off with laying a foundation, a bit of a bit of basics. So why do athletes get hip and groin pain? Then we move on to the diagnosis. Um, why do some athletes recover fully? Why do some athletes have persistent injuries? Then we discuss more around the assessment a little bit of chat around surgery and then some of the markers that Ender uses at the sports surgery clinic when reintroducing running load and training load. So a really interesting chat that follows on really nicely from last week. So it was supposed to be one big episode, but it was quite obvious that there was two distinct areas, the ACL stuff and the hip and groin work that Ender does. So we split into two. So if you haven't checked out last week's discussing ACLs, make sure you do. But this is a great standalone standalone episode, as is last week's. You don't have to listen to last week's to, to kind of get, get a, a gist of what this is about. So it's a really interesting episode, and I think it's uh, one that's unique, in my opinion, having Ender on, because he's a, a strength and conditioning coach, but with this very much a rehab focus. So a really, really interesting part two with Ender King. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasure U have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Ender King. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast this evening. 
And the second Wednesday evening in a row, I am welcoming Ender King to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks very much, Rob, for having me on again. Absolute pleasure. It's been so a quick, anyone... quick week. It's, yeah. Self-isolation, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's dragging a little bit. It is a little bit. Yeah, but anyone that wants a bit more in-depth intro to you, I would encourage them to go to part one or even the episode that we did previously. But those who haven't caught them yet and are, and are tuning in to the part two, just want to give us a, a, a very brief summary of what you're doing in the sports surgery clinic, and then yeah. we'll jump in. You'll we'll jump into hip and groins this week. Yeah. Um, so the, the, for those that don't know, the sports surgery clinic is is a private orthopedic hospital um, based about five minutes from Dublin Airport. Um, and I have the role of uh, head of performance in the sports medicine and research department. Um, and I probably have, have three three hats. I have my clinician hat or my physiotherapy hat. I look after our residential athletes that come to spend blocks of time with us for either uh, intensive rehab post-surgery or those that are suffering from, from chronic overuse injuries, of which groin is one, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, I have my academic hat on. Um, I done my PhD in 3D biomechanics um, after ACL reconstruction and also we've quite a lot of publications around lower limb biomechanics in particular in relation to athletic groin pain um, and then I have my my uh, managerial or, or leadership hat um, in which I'm responsible for the clinical consistency across our team with a large enough team of 25 odd physios 10 strength conditioning coaches, 10 of the biomechanics team, sports medicine docs as well, uh, and integration with orthopedics. And so trying to get that level of consistency among us and between us um, in terms of the tests we use, our interpretation of those tests, and then the clinical outcomes that, that we look to achieve afterwards. So they're the, the three main hats. Nice, mate. Just in terms of publications, because you guys are quite prolific with pumping out the research, do you guys have any sort of goals on that, any number of publications you want to get out or is that very still a very personal thing no it's it's i suppose <clears throat> in order to to i suppose it's quite a unique academic environment in that it's a private business and every one of those that, that are producing the papers are full-time employees uh working i would say nine to five but working you know big hours every week and so it's it's it, it's very much driven by um what are the clinical questions that we're being faced with day to day and week to week? And um, because we have such large population specific to so let's say 1,000 ACLs or 400 groins, I think we have 500 shoulder reconstructions. Um, my colleague Adele Fanning is doing her PhD in 3D biomechanics after shoulder recon. So you have a lot of people who are specialists in an area uh, with access to large volumes of the same kind of athlete uh, and, and some I suppose deep burning desire to, to probe that area further. So um it's 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 driven by the need to try and improve the services we're delivering and better understand what we're doing. And that has a, a natural uh, consequence of that. But I think we've fifty odd publications in the last four or five years. So it's it's um you know for, for what what in a business point of view is a part time gig, it's it's certainly quite prolific. But it's down to the, the I suppose the hunger and eagerness of the staff. Nice. So last week we dived into the ACL. And it was there was potential for actually getting that into one episode with the grind stuff, but given the depth of knowledge and experience that you've got, it, it ended up in two, which is which is great, which gives a little bit more time to go a bit deeper onto this one. So, just to dumb it down for the simpletons like myself, why why do athletes get hip and grind pain? Yeah, it's it's 
I suppose it's it's a beautiful storm of um I wouldn't even say excessive load, but load recovery and biomechanics or movement. And so you generally speaking, athletic hip and groin pain is a is a gradual onset. Um, you do get acute on chronic episodes, but generally speaking, it's, it's, a, it's a gradual onset. It, it can be quite chronic in nature and last, you know, for, for prolonged periods of time. And and it's commonly, the symptoms commonly begin with, with transitions in load. So um, it'll be interesting how much hip and groin pain there is after this COVID break. Okay. Uh, you know, could, could be good for business, but um, it, it comes in sort of at, at the big start of seasons um, in in prolonged heavy schedules in athletes who have been injured and coming back from injury in, in the beginning of seasons or at any stage in the season, or maybe younger athletes that are stepping up very, very common to step up into senior squads and there's a change in intensity and frequency. So load, load you may not necessarily be the problem, but it exposes the problem and it certainly brings it, brings it to light. Um, that can also be insufficient recovery and that load is a good thing. It's how we, it's how we get fitter. It's how we get stronger. It's how our tissues adapt. But if we've inconsistent in, uh, sufficient periods of recovery in between um, that can lead to, to symptom generation and, and pubic bone overload would be a good example it, it's very very normal to have pubic bone edema and um, that's been shown in numerous studies that healthy pain-free athletes have, have, have pubic bone edema as part of their normal turnover of bone but it's when that imbalance between load and recovery reaches a, a certain threshold and um, that starts to become symptomatic um, and the thirdly then is, is, is the biomechanics how we move so there's the amount of load I have to absorb or dissipate and there's the way that I, I my, my body tolerates that um, in terms of the positions I put myself in and how I preferentially load one or, or multiple structures more repetitively or consistently than, than elsewhere in the kinetic chain. Um, and same for, for any other overuse injury, whether that's Achilles tendinopathy or patellar tendinopathy. And so when you're looking at why athletes develop these symptoms, it's very common that that triangle of load recovery and mechanics and if we're to be effective at preventing and rehabilitating these presentations uh, we need we need a good understanding of all three to have the most successful and, and efficient outcome so i know we had a bit of a joke about this this period of time when athletes are going to be well the schedule's a bit all over the place do you expect a, a spike in this type of thing when athletes start to return to normal in however many weeks and months that it is yeah, I mean, I think it'll be it'll be a very interesting study, you know, uh, retrospectively, um, across all injuries. Really, you know, it's, it's you know it's well documented in some of the the lockout cases in 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 the I think it was the NBA and the NFL where they had a spike in, in Achilles injuries on on return afterwards. I think in any period of of offloading and deloading, especially when we're in supposed to be at least in in isolation and and the nature of the training you can do is very different. Um, you know, you can have exceptionally good mechanics, whatever the hell good is, but not have that that uh, uh, built up that that tissue tolerance um, over time. Um, and so, whether that's tendon injuries or whether it's bony injuries, any you know, especially if they go to ramp things back up again quite quickly afterwards, where there's a rush to finish seasons, or and um, I, I know the Euros have, have been have been put back, but if, the, if there is a a, a a rush to play a load of games to get them played off as quickly as possible, it'll be very interesting to see what kind of mandated mini pre seasons are put in place when clubs can go back to officially train um, before competitive games start. 
and, and, and how the players' unions and how the organisations uh, come to some sort of agreement and that will be quite interesting over the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. That, I think that's a, definitely a podcast in itself because that would that will be interesting because you, you look at the people who are, and this, like I say, I'm not going to go, not going to go into too, too much depth with this, but the people who've had nothing to play for in terms of like a mid-table team, they could almost see this as a as the off-season and then they go back, they've got, I don't know how many games left, seven or eight games, and then just carry on, almost carry on right through to a certain extent, maybe a little bit of downtime, but then just crack on again. So it'd be interesting to see how different, this is talking about football, but how different clubs are managing it currently and will manage it as we as we move through this period, then into the back training and then back playing. Yeah, yeah and, and especially when you look at the differences between sports. Um, as we said last week, I was down in Australia recently and we had a good bit of interaction with AFL teams. And I mean, they have a very long pre-season. Um, but they're possibly going to have as long an off-season now before they go back in. So, I mean, there's a reason they have a long pre-season. The, the mileage and the load is, is quite high in AFL. So, on, on the flip side of that is it could be one of the longest pre-seasons football teams get because they yes. normally have, especially depending on what on what summer tournaments are on, you know, some of the players may only get a short relative period of offload and then reload. So, they actually might find it a real benefit to have a, a, a solid block of pre-season whether that loads runs from one season straight into the next one or whatever, it'll be uh, interesting how different teams. Same with, with the NFL, uh, we see Tom Brady's moved moved teams this week, um, but you know some of the challenges for him moving to a new club in relay or a new franchise in relation to not being able to train with his teammates, get back up to speed with the the plays and calls, and how they're different between teams. Um, it's it's going to be interesting how different different sports uh, deal with it. It's interesting because I've already had two friends come to me and say have you got any contact in the afl to put me in touch with them to see what their pre-seasons look like yeah so i think like you say people are already expecting this long long pre-season and actually getting some getting some advice from those that go through it every year yeah absolutely very different between sports yeah so given how complex hip and groin injuries are how is diagnosis therefore an issue yeah I, how difficult is it it's 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 interesting because, by and large, hip and groin issues are seen as being complex, um, and the complexity, you know, probably comes from two areas. Number one is where the hell is the pain coming from, um, and the difficulty in trying to identify a specific structure. And then, secondly, is well, why have they developed symptoms, and 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 what are the various components to lead to that? So, from a diagnosis point of view, um, it's a challenge because especially in the more chronic presentations, um, very often there's multiple structures that are painful concurrently. Um, so they'll start off by saying, look, I, I pain in my pubic bone. Now it's spreading and under more around my adductor longus or my adductor magnus or it's come up into my abdominals. Um, and so what name do you put on the structure? If you have pain in three different areas, is that really just bad luck and you have three different diagnoses? Um, or is it just my anterior pelvis is overloaded and just different tissues are becoming symptomatic the more longer I progress? And, um, the second one is that that our clinical or our pain provocation tests are sensitive but not very specific. So, for example, if we look at the squeeze test, um, this was a, a research from a, a paper from my colleague Ian Falvey when we published um, on a cohort of consecutive athletic groin pain patients in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. So, when you have a squeeze test at forty-five or, or zero, it's it's quite. Uh, sensitive for a doctor lay groin pain or for injury to the pubic aponeurosis but it's not very specific so if i squeeze my knees together and i have pain um 
I have no idea where that pain is coming from. But if I squeeze my knees together and I don't have pain, well, I'm pretty sure I don't have any adductor pathology. I don't have any injury to the, to the pubic ponderosis. So, our, our, and, and again, it can be how um, we, we skew our assessment in that we assume if we squeeze our knees together, that ultimately in a squeeze test, that's ultimately the adductors that are primarily loaded. But actually, more or less every structure around the anterior pelvis, whether it's your abdominals, your hip flexors, your pubic bone, and the adductor group are all loaded in that activity. So it's very difficult to differentiate out. Uh, and then our radiology throws up a lot of false positives. Um, so a huge number of athletic populations will have asymptomatic labral tears, will have asymptomatic cam lesions, will have asymptomatic pubic bone edema uh, and, and micro-tearing or, or cleft signs in the adductors. Um, and so if you use any one piece of information, whether that's palpation or pain provocation or radiology, um, it's very often that you get sent down the wrong path. And then secondly is, what are you going to do with it? And I suppose what diagnosis you give it doesn't really matter unless, or what name you put on it, unless your treatment changes dramatically depending on what name you put on it. Um, and that's probably the biggest challenges where uh, someone calls it a doctor problem, someone calls it a, an abdominal problem, someone calls it an inguinal problem. So one does strengthening, one does rest, and one does surgery for the same athlete. Um, and that can be that can be a, a real challenge. We had a guy... Um, come over from the UK a couple of weeks ago, and and he had you know he was told he had three main problems he had weakness of the posterior under wall, he had uh, pubic bone edema or osteitis pubis as it's called sometimes, and had a doctor leg groin pain, and he was told he needed a strengthening program for the doctors, he needed an injection for his pubic bone, and he needed an operation for his for his posterior wall, even though he had the one gradual onset of symptoms and was, you know, more or less reporting the exact same symptoms since onset. So I think, you know, diagnosis is important because it's important to say, is this for rehab or is it not for rehab? So if you have a stress fracture, the neck of femur, it's not that that doesn't need rehab, but that's not going to be the first part of call here. Uh, if you have some rheumatological condition and, um, that's something that's going to need uh, medical interpretation and management. Whether exercise forms part of that overall global strategy, it may do afterwards. But if I say you have you know, abdominal-related uh, groin pain or pubic-related groin pain or doctor-related groin pain, that doesn't tell me anything about what I need to do rehab-wise. And so if you have you know, four athletes with, with a doctor-related groin pain, does that mean that they all move the same way and they've all developed symptoms for the same reason, they have the same strengths and weaknesses? Or have they, you know, a common structure that ends up symptomatic but for different reasons. And therefore, if I pull my adductor program out of my back pocket, that might be what one athlete needs. It mightn't be, it might be a bit of what another athlete needs and it might be what another athlete needs at all. And they're the guys and girls that uh, they fail rehab. But did they fail rehab or did rehab fail them? So it's, it's, it's trying to identify, A, you know, where's the pain coming from? As in, is it for rehab or is it not for rehab? And then secondly, um, once I've decided you're for rehab, well, then I kind of need to start from scratch again and go back and say, right, why have you developed your symptoms around that triangle of load recovery and biomechanics? And then obviously we can load manage you and, 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 and begin to navigate that side of things. But then how can I break you down biomechanically to identify where your weaknesses are in the chain and then how I can bring you back into the type of activities that have, have provoked your symptoms? So in the in the moment in time where that person comes in you're trying to decipher which part of that triangle is potentially the issue what's the next step for you guys 
Um, I suppose you, you, when you're coming in the beginning, you're, you're trying to say, look, we want three things from today's interaction. Number one is we want to be happy. We know where your pain is coming from. Number two is we want to know why you're developing symptoms there. And number three is what the hell we're going to do about it. And so it's almost like we split it into two, as in where's the pain coming from? Right, okay, you're for, you're for rehab, that's fine. So let's bucket all that off to one side. Now, how can we develop a profile of you to identify why you've developed the symptoms the way you have? And that'll be, uh, again, we're, we're fortunate enough in Dublin to have a, two 3D biomechanics labs. Um, so we will do full biomechanical workup on uh, jumping, landing, change direction, and running mechanics. Um, we'll do strength and power measures. We'll do measures of plyometric and reactive strength. Um, and then we'll do an assessment of um, motor control around the hip and pelvis and thorax through compound movements like squats and lunges and deadlifts and, and various hip assessments. So by the end of that uh, profile, you can say, well, look, here's where your strengths and here's where your weaknesses are. We're fairly happy. If we bring you from A to B and we gradually increase your load again in parallel, that should get us into into the areas that we want to go because commonly in, in, in assessment of hip and groin pain, assessment tends to be on single muscles and single planes. So how strong are my hip flexors? Uh, how strong are my adductors? How strong is my lateral hip or my hip extension or my abdominals? But those individual muscle groups are incredibly important, but also then how I begin to uh, express or the type of force I can express at speed uh, whether that's plyometrically or explosively, um, and then how I execute you know, or what coordination or me- mechanics I have during and running and change direction is going to further influence those things. And so if I look at someone's change direction mechanics, you might infer where they have strengths and weaknesses, but you have no idea on, you know, why they're choosing the strategy they're choosing. It may be because they have insufficient quad strength or they have insufficient lateral hip strength or they have a poor ability to produce force eccentrically uh, at high speeds. Um, or they might be quite good at all those things and that's just the motor strategy that they have for change direction because of an old ankle sprain or an old ACL or maybe the position that they play uh, on the field. Um, and so how can I be, if they're telling me, look at this, when I go to sidestep or push off, that's when I develop my groin pain. If I don't examine them doing those movements, how can I identify A, you know, whether that's an efficient strategy, an inefficiency strategy, B, where the gaps in the chain are, chain are that are leading to that. And then C, does my rehab program make any difference? Um, one of the beauties about having a biomechanics lab is you get, you get to test your work very, very, very frequently. <laughs> and there's nothing more humbling uh, than having a retest and seeing that some of those deficits you identified initially may not have accelerated or changed as quickly as, as you wanted. So that's a fantastic challenge for your exercise selection for your coaching for your programming and your periodization because you're getting feedback all the time and just because i can you know that worked for one athlete does that mean it's going to work for for another athlete Um, and i can do all the coaching drills in the world but if i'm down in my reactive strength or down in my eccentric greater force development or my my quad strength there's going to be a ceiling to how much i can change your mechanics within a, a given coaching session but conversely I might have all the strength in the world, but unless I'm constraining those drills to try and get an adaptation or a change in your motor pattern, you're just going to go back to what you were doing beforehand as well. So it's um, it's, it's it's a challenge to keep it. It's not that everyone needs all of these things, but if you don't assess all these things at the beginning, how do you work out what each athlete individually needs? Mm-hmm. So we'll go into the assessments in a bit. There's just a few questions that I've got off the back of that. 
So you say that some like fail rehab or in other words, rehab fails them. Why does that, what's the biggest reason for that? And you might have covered that in what you've just said anyway, but are there any main reasons why people yeah. would not succeed with rehab? I think two of the major challenges from, from a rehab point of view are trying to identify all the contributors. Um, from a strength point of view, from a coordination point of view, from a running and change direction mechanics point of view. And if I don't identify them all at the start, how do I know six weeks later when the training load comes back up again that they're just not going back to doing what they were doing beforehand? Um, the second thing is, and more humbly, is that I've identified the factors, but my exercise selection or the way I'm coaching those exercises or programming them over time is not affecting change. And so... You know, the analogy I use is um, I play a little bit of golf very badly, um, not too much at the minute, but um, <laughs> if I go on the driving range and I hit 50 golf balls, I'm never any better at golf because I hit them exactly like I hit them yesterday and exactly like I hit them last week. And so Sounds familiar to me. It's, you know, so hitting a golf ball is a motor skill in the same way running and change direction is a motor skill. And so doing the same thing repeatedly doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be any more skillful at that given activity. In the same way, like strength training, I can go to the gym regularly, you know, bluff along. Uh, either not, not only that I'm not training intensely enough, but the way I'm executing those exercises are not targeting this, the, the specific muscle groups that you want. Um, only to realize that when you go to retest that actually there wasn't a huge uh, change in, in the metrics from, from pre to post. And so the main reasons athletes fail rehab or fail any rehab, but in particular athletic groin pain rehab is um, because all the contributors have, to the problem have not been identified um, um, and uh, because my program has not taken them from A to B as efficiently as possible. And so either it's because it's easier to measure or or whatever it's easier to quantify load gets the majority of blame <coughs> in in all injuries it was a load problem their gps went up the gps went down but it's it's load is exposing the problem rather than causing the problem um, and so if we want to improve their mechanical efficiency a it should have um athletic performance benefits um but also b if the training load goes down their symptoms might reduce but if i haven't changed the way they transfer and dissipate load when the training load comes back up again and um, their symptoms will just reappear and so it's interesting like the biggest risk factor for, for any injuries but particularly groin injuries is previous injury um, and is that because of a, a you know reduced tolerance of that specific tissue that was injured previously or painful previously or is it because i haven't really changed or adapted the reason that that structure became overloaded in the first place and you'll see you know this high co-prevalence of those with uh, yeah, morphological change at the hip in particular cam lesion and the presence of musculotendinous groin pain at the front of the hip and pelvis. And so many of the mechanics around how I control my pelvis, especially anterior pelvic tilt, how I control my center of mass relative to the stance leg and how I lean and sway and go into abduction, that's going to lead to particular motor loading patterns across the hip joint and, and, and increased impingement dynamically over time. And um, it's going to lead to a lot of extra stress and strain through the abdominals, the adductors and the hip flexors as well. So you see that you know th this common path mechanical model of, of, of loading the anterior hip and groin. And if I don't step in there and intervene, especially in, in older athletes or maybe those athletes with larger cam lesions, they're room for error. It's not that they're going to, you know, you see lots of people with anterior tilt you know, or, or, or poor running a change direction mechanics that never get groin pain. Um, but is that that they won't in the future or that the load just hasn't been 
you know, high, high enough to expose, dispose their individual deficits. Um, and so, again, that's where, again, if you put all your eggs in one basket and say it's all load or it's all mechanics, um, you're, you're less likely to have a successful outcome. I think that ability to, um, to approach it from both spheres, but unfortunately it tends to be very much a load management sphere in that I develop groin pain, I train a bit less, uh, but play matches, I develop more groin pain, I play a bit less until the point where I can't play at all. And then I rest for six weeks or, or four months as recommended in some cases. And then I go back training and the symptoms just reappear. And is that a, is that a new injury? Or is that just the same injury that just lay dormant until the load was sufficient to, to, to reproduce the symptoms again? So another thing you mentioned in that was surgery. What is the criteria for surgery and why would you go down that route as opposed to rehab? Yeah, again, it, it comes back to the challenge with surgery in the round of athletic groin pain is the number of different procedures available. Um, so you could have an individual athlete who uh, will, will be advised that they need to release tension in the area. So they'll release the inguinal ligament or they'll release the adductor longus. And you could have the same athlete who said they need to reinforce the area. So they need a, a, a suture repair at the posterior wall or they need a mesh repair or they need a... Um, some kind of reconstruction of the anterior uh, pubic aponeurosis. And so it's quite challenging for clinicians and for players when they're told there's multiple different answers, quite different answers to the same set of symptoms. Um, and then you also get this high prevalence of those who have signs for surgery but completely asymptomatic. Um, so you see it very, very consistently in those that are told of posterior inguinal wall weakness is that the other side is just as weak. It's a matter of time before you develop symptoms there. Um, and so the, when you look at specific things that, that need repair, I mean, a direct inguinal hernia um, needs to be repaired. That, that's a large protrusion of your intestinal content through the, the posterior inguinal wall um, in the inguinal canal. But that's incredibly rare in athletic populations, much more prevalent in, in older male populations. And the other part that's a challenge with those populations is that the majority um, present completely asymptomatic. They come to see you because they think they've developed a, a cancerous lump or their third testicle is dropped or, or, or something. They, they don't actually come because they're presenting with symptoms. And so you have this large, large protrusion coming through the inguinal canal and they are completely asymptomatic. And yet subtle weaknesses on, on, on ultrasound or whatever else are suggested to be a source of chronic pain in these athletic populations. So um, in terms of who, who should go for surgery, again, we would send very, very few for surgery. We don't think that the, there's a repair needed because we don't think that the, the, there's a specific pathology to be fixed. But um, my, my point around surgery should be if it needs surgery, it needs surgery. It doesn't need surgery because it's failed rehab. Uh, if it's failed rehab, is that because there's something structurally wrong that should have been repaired in the first place, or is it because I haven't identified what needed to be fixed and haven't gone about my bro? You know, so sometimes you get athletes who have quite you know difficult groin pain coming to us, and um, I'm not saying it's nearly better if they've had surgery, but it takes it off the table straight away, and immediately you have their buy-in that well, okay, I went and had that done and it it, it didn't help, um, so they buy in now to okay, well I can see my mechanics, I can see what I need to do let's go and take these boxes. And what my, my rationale to them is if you go from A to B and you still have symptoms, well, then we have something to discuss. But if you look like this in six weeks' time and you're wondering why your symptom level is the same, why, if it was true back then, why is it not still still true now? Um, so 
the, the, the second bar with that then would, would be around femoral scapular impingement and, and hip arthroscopy. And I suppose in the last five to 10 years, there's been a, a real prolific increase in the amount of athletes going for, for hip arthroscopy. Um, and that's probably been tempered greatly in the last uh, two to three years in particular, whereby um, there's some really robust research showing that you know label tears are, are asymptomatic label tears are, are present in about 75 to 80% of, of the athletic population. Wow, um, that that you know the, the presence of cam lesion is 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 quite common in, in asymptomatic athletes, um, and so it's you know whatever about having a, a soft tissue repair, whether it's needed or whether it's not, um, for athletic groin pain. When you go into someone's joint, any joint, you know you, you're you're fundamentally changing that joint going forward, um, and it's only when you go to look at different parts of the body, so you look at. Uh, the knee joint, and you look at the history of knee arthroscopy, it kind of starts with, like, you know, I'm going to take all the meniscus out and then I'm going to take, you know, a little bit out and then I'm going to take, try and repair it. And then actually it's, even if there's a tear there, I'm going to try, if you look at the natural history of how management of those things has evolved. Um, and, and so it's, it's um, interesting over time that again, these pendulums tend to swing aggressively one way and then aggressively back the other. And uh, it's again, trying to get, get them in a good position before they start to develop chondral wear um, because once they start to develop chondral wear that's obviously the beginning of, of, of a of a different journey for that joint um, and that's always going to be again a combination of uh, anatomy load and mechanics um, and again what 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 drives hip impingement uh, anatomically is going to be influenced greatly by your pelvic position when you're running in your pelvic position when you change direction you can make huge improvements when you're squatting as well and deadlifting so um, I think we can be incredibly proactive um, but there are some who, who especially in muscular tendinous groin pain there are some who, who, who benefit and feel better after surgery um, whether that's it was enough of a reinforcement to the area um, to, to alter how, how, whether the, the area became symptomatic or not some surgeries do a, a nerve resection uh, at Ilya Wingwood and our general femoral nerve resection so maybe that offers some symptom relief um, I, I suppose, ironically a lot of, of professional teams that you would chat to would say that um, it's not necessarily the feel that the athlete needs surgery but often they're afforded a, you know surgery offers a defined period of rehabilitation you know the, the, the coach and the player and the med and etc will give you a 6, 8, 10 week window then to really go back and, and, and put things back better than you found them so um it, it, it's a real challenge, you know, as, as to who should go and who shouldn't go. But my, my clear bit is, in our practice, um, practically no one is, is ever sent for surgery. Um, and if it is, if, if you know, an organization or a medical team felt someone was for surgery, it shouldn't be because rehab has failed. Um, because if you have addressed all the mechanical features that you felt needed to bring them from a, a symptomatic place to an asymptomatic place and they still have symptoms, well, then you might have a point for discussion. Or you could go back and say, well, actually, have I identified everything that needed to be addressed in the first place? Um, and so that's that's quite a challenging case. But it's interesting, again, we're, we're 10 years with our growing program in, in the sports surgery clinic. And when you get that, that volume, you begin to see the, the trends in, in management over time. Uh, and one of the interesting things was in, in, in our recent trip to Australia was how when I was going through the various procedures that are available how there's such a geographical bias because certain diagnoses don't exist because those procedures don't exist in in certain parts of the world so um, it's yeah it's interesting but again I think 
it's over time it's evolving that you know this is a, this is an issue around load and it's an issue around movement and when you look at pathology in the area there's a huge amount of asymptomatic pathology uh, that's completely normal in these athletes and um if you can expand your uh your your assessment criteria you're far more likely to identify and you can see this in i was listening to some of your recent podcasts on 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 running injuries and 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 you know if you look at biomechanics and acl for example you know that everywhere else in the body there, there's a there's a, a huge appreciation of how movement influences especially the development of chronic presentations and um, i think groin pain is, is very strongly shifting in that direction so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Ender. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more around surgery and why some of the injuries that Ender is talking about require surgery and why some may not and why some practitioners may think that's the way to go and others may not. It's really interesting part two. So we also discuss um, the need to actually stop playing and reduce training load during these periods of athletic groin hip and groin pain and then also some screens for athletic hip and groin pain which you may want to implement in your environment so this is the first episode that i've had that is recorded for youtube so there's a video to go with it which is basically me and ender um talking so you want to if you want to be subjected with looking at me look at my face for an hour um you can jump over and subscribe to the youtube channel but exactly the same content um, just a video to go with it, that's all. So I hope you enjoy part two and enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by AthleteMonitoring.com, the world's most comprehensive, versatile and cost-effective athlete health and performance management platform for elite sports. So AthleteMonitoring.com is trusted by top development programs, universities, professional teams, Olympic programs, national sports organizations and research institutes worldwide. It streamlines data collection, centralizes the management of wellness, training and performance, medical and testing and administrative data. It also simplifies the interpretation with best practice analytics and evidence-based methods to optimize performance and reduce injury risk. So with all these features on a single platform, AthleteMonitoring.com seamlessly brings key stakeholders together to build healthier athletes, more efficient organizations and long-lasting successes. To see what AthleteMonitoring.com can do for you, visit AthleteMonitoring.com and schedule a free demo or follow them on Twitter at Athlete Monitor. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. OmegaWave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. OmegaWave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They are also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about OmegaWave, visit their website omegawave.com or visit their social media channels. 
It was interesting because when I used to work at the football club in 2010, 11, 12 in the academy, uh, Doncaster, there was in the not that I had anything to do with the first team, but it was almost like every other week there was someone going for surgery. And me thinking at the time, I've got nothing to do with this and it's not my place to say anything or even if I did, no one would listen. But really? Like, did you seem, it, that seemed the first option? Yeah, um, and, it, and, it, and it's it because and it goes back to the, again, it goes back to the pendulum swinging. It goes back to the expectation management. If, if and you know, again, I wouldn't but the height of respect for those working in team environments because it's it's organized chaos. You know, it's usually yeah. demanding the loads and the games are coming quick and fast. If, if a player's not progressing quickly in the positive direction, the coach is antsy, the player is antsy, the, the, the agent is antsy. And so you, it's often an easier, but also if one or two players have gone, well, why did he go and why did I not yeah. go? Yeah. But it's interesting how that pendulum has began to swing now where you've had a couple, you know, lots of, who have gone for in particular hip surgery, but also for musculotendinous surgery and their outcomes not being as good. And then they've gone back and rehabbed it and it's turned out well for them. And they begin to cross pollinate and I begin to, to, you know, so again, it goes back to those, those trends of, you know, if it's the done thing for a while, it's the done thing. And then the reality of a success becomes apparent or not. Um, or also the understanding and the research catch up and people's understanding of why things are and what's normal and what's abnormal improves over time. Like it does in every single injury. Um, you can see that the players can be some of the strongest advocates for management trending back in, in, in different directions. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the assessment front. So you mentioned a couple, um, but I just want to go into a bit more detail on some of the uh, things that we discussed previously, like hip and trunk control and strength. Could you go take us through the assessment that you would go through with, with an individual? Is that yeah. possible? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we would start off with a, with a full biomechanical profiles so that would be uh, drop jumps and counter movement jumps looking at their power and plyometric output but also the mechanics at which they execute those movements and so um, everything's been filmed in that everything, situation okay. everything everything so it's always and this goes for you know you, your change direction speed or time or your running mechanic you know your running speed you could be running at an x speed but you can be producing that force very differently across a number of athletes so it's, it's always that that combination between the numbers you're producing and the way that you're producing those numbers um and so we would do our drop jump and kind of movement jump testing we would do uh running mechanics high speed running on a treadmill uh looking at frontal plane mechanics in particular in mid-stand, so pelvic drop, trunk sway, hip reduction, foot control, looking at um, control of rotation, in particular arm swing, trunk swing, and, and swing leg mechanics. Um, uh, we would look at their, in the, in the sagittal plane, their ankle dorsiflexion, their ground contact, their pelvic position at mid-stance and at toe-off, and their overstride. You can begin to again. It's not that any one of these things is is causing the problem, but they're all contributing to where load is accepted and and, and transferred and, and dissipated. Um, and then we do um, planned and unplanned change direction. Uh, again, looking at their foot position. So those that tend to have issues around lateral lip control, etc., tend to rotate uh, change direction a more externally rotated foot, um, which is going to influence how they load the, the head neck junction of the femur, and um, they tend to lose control of their center of mass rather than the stance leg either by rotating uh, ipsilaterally and either causing impingement around the hip joint or anterior pelvis or increased sway loading through the uh, abdominals and through the adductors um, and then we will go back and do an individual strength profile which would be isokinetic testing most commonly around the hip and around the knee 
um, but also around the ankle as well. If they've, uh, especially in footballers who have had a, a history of, of, of ankle sprains previously, um, and then we look at a global motor control assessment around how they overhead squat, how they lunge, how they deadlift, and what their thoracic lumbar and lumbar pelvic control is like. Because a lot of the time, the emphasis tends to be, and rightly so, on the pelvic position on the hip. But especially in, in those that do a lot of strength training. Uh, rugby, um, AFL, Gaelic Games, NFL, you get this big stiff thorax. And so you can do all this lovely lumbo-pelvic work and then you have this big, you know, stiff, uh, immobile thorax that's going to greatly influence, uh, A, your, your, your squatting mechanics and how you lower your central master and change direction, but also B, uh, influence how you can recruit your oblique muscles and, and, and the position, or am I going to dominate through my rex abdominis uh, as is very common in those anteriorly tilted and rib flared positions. So um, you're, you're going through all of that. And so when we go through it, the way I try and talk the athlete through it is, is we do the assessment uh, uh, from the lab all the way back to the to the assessment plane, looking at hip range and, and, and individual muscle strength. And then we say, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk you back up through this now again. So can you see the deficits here and here in your strength? Can you see how that's reflected in your reduced power output or your reduced plyometric ability, can you see how those have an influence on that mid-stance mechanic? You're less springy and you're more pelvic drop in mid-stance and running. You're more anteriorly tilted in your squat and you can see that carrying through your change direction and your overhead squat. You say, right, can you see how you're complaining of pain when you sprint or you're complaining of pain when you change direction? Can you see the difference in mechanics left versus right? Um, and of how we, if we coast or, or influence those movement patterns, that should have a positive effect, both from a performance point of view, but also from a, a, um, an offloading or an injury uh, management point of view. And so now we need to build a program that's going to address this in you. And I normally have clips of, of other athletes um, who have groin pain as well and show them how, even though they're the same pain, they can present very, very differently. And so, and especially when, you know, clubs often bring multiple players across or bring a player back, um, a player, a different player back than the one who had been previously. And it's fantastic to contrast the different mm. be- between the two players uh, in how they move and what drives player one versus player two. Because uh, commonly you find that, you know, you copy and paste the program that worked for that athlete and just give it here and then can't work out why it's not having the, the same effect. And that, 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 that goes to suggest that the program is the key here and the program is not the key. The assessment is the key and the to-do list is the key. You can pick any exercise you want. Like the beauty part of our job is that there's fantastic ways of coming up with new exercises, new strategies uh, when it comes to motor learning and how we manipulate drills to influence running mechanics generate. Like that's incredibly enjoyable side of work. Um, so it's not that there's a right way and a wrong way there's where you are and there's where we think you need to be and one of our, our, our I suppose a couple of our findings from our, our research intervention when we took a core of these athletes and managed them um, it's in, the, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine managed them specific on how they move not on where their pain was coming from so dumped in a doctor dumped in in your soles pubic etc abdominal and we found there was no relationship between uh, commencing the program and, and pain-free return to play, uh, no relationship with your anatomical diagnosis. So right. just because you were a pubic bone or a doctor, it made no difference in how quickly you recovered. And um, your, the influence of how long you were symptomatic had no relationship with how quickly you recovered. So you could be symptomatic for six weeks or 16 weeks or 60 weeks. And that had no So if, if where the pain is coming from doesn't matter and how long you're sore for doesn't matter, 
well then is it how quickly I can bring you from where the way you're moving now to where we think we want you to go and sensibly load manage across that period is that what's going to successfully get us from A to B because my adductor program might work for one but not work for another so it can't be that the the program is specific to you get lots of athletes who come for review and that have done you know weeks of, of core work and weeks of a doctor strengthening and test extremely good and extremely strong in those areas and have no symptom change because their adductor strength was not what the problem was mm-hmm. um, and that's not to say all athletes have, have good adductor strength but one of my colleagues Sam Beda is currently doing his PhD he's repeating our our, uh, our uh, study on, on segmental control and athletic groin pain and he's looking at uh, handheld dynamometry changes pre and post and it's really interesting how quickly those measures recover despite the fact that you know there's no specific adductor strengthening within the program so um i think that's something that is 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 getting through that need to be it's not that this is the program you need to do it's not that this is the exercise you need to do it's you're going to change it. and you only have to go on on, on twitter these days and you'll see mm-hmm. 101 different uh, home exercise programs and uh, <laughs> i wouldn't mind shares in, in joe wick's uh Oh, uh, body coach. Yeah, fair to We're talking about hardworking guys. Uh, yeah. he, he's really banged it out now. But, um, you know, so there's, there's lots of ways of doing it. But what are you changing? And, you know, if you, if you don't look or test any different in six or eight or ten weeks, have I failed rehab or I've just, I'm on the driving range hitting golf balls and, I, you know, I'm wondering why I'm still off 18 or whatever it is. So anything, any assessments around kicking, especially for, for, sports like afl or soccer or yeah so we we would get again you tend to see it's interesting when you look at you take uh, soccer as an example you know if you look at where they do the majority of the kicks versus the kicks that they say provoke them so the majority of the kicks are short in-step kicks you know passing around tiki-taka whatever whatever kind of uh, you're doing however that's not the ones that tend to provoke them the one that tends to provoke them is that long cross-field ball to the far side and so is that a, you know is that a, a mechanical issue with kicking or is it i'm sensitive in that area and here's a very high load uh, maneuver influencing that but you and um, you would see it we would do a lot of assessment you get a lot of, of of kicking pain in in rugby as an example in your fly halves um in your sorry in your number 10s and um, and a lot of the time the pain can be on either leg so you get those that when they plant, it's their stance leg that they're developing their groin pain on. So they have okay. poor control in mid-stance when they go to kick. Or you'll get the others who they get it on their swing leg. So everyone always seems, you know, kicking pain, kicking pain must be on the kicking leg. But actually, there's two sides to that. Number one is, certainly in my experience, a lot of them can get the pain on, on either leg. It can be the stance leg or the kicking leg. Um, in, in defined single leg kicking sports, obviously in football, especially leaf football, people tend to kick more prevalently with both legs. But let's say uh, in, in, in rugby, as an example, you have a dominant kicking leg. Um, they can develop symptoms on either side. So poor control on my stance leg, developing uh, pain when they go to plant or on the contralateral side, or by extension, developing pain on their kicking leg, but because of the mechanics in the stance leg. So they don't have that you know, firm stability, that, that, um, that solid pillar to anchor off, to generate force through the abdominals and hip flexors and rec fem. And so strengthening my rec fem and strengthening my doctors and hip flex on that side may not be enough 
to, to, to address why I become symptomatic in that area. Um, and so we would always look at, at, and there's a huge, obviously, overlap between running mechanics and kicking mechanics in that, you know, the, the global pattern of flex one leg while standing on the other one is, is quite consistent between the both. And so those that you tend to see that are in anterior pelvic tilt and standing and a big pelvic drop or sway, a lot of those characteristics tend to come out in, in their kicking mechanics as well. But you, you're, you're left with that imbalance and that is, is kicking the problem or is kicking just a provocative uh, activity because the majority of kicks in soccer at least are sh- short distance in-step passes um, and they don't tend to be reported as being particularly provocative. It's that long cross-field ball or corner kick or uh, cross in from the wing that tend to be the or goalkeeper kicking off the off, off the ground that tend to be the more provocative activities. Mm-hmm. So when athletic ground pain presents itself, I guess the, the the main question that players, athletes will be asking, coaches will be asking, managers will be asking, is can they still train? So is yeah. that something that you? I mean, I know everything. Every um, case is different, but is that something that can continue during this period? Yeah, I think it, it goes back to our steps. So number one is, um, uh, am I clear where the pain is coming from? So again, do I want to continue training with stress fractures and ecofema? I, I probably don't. And so having clarity around that is obviously very important. If we if we bucket all the different injuries and athletic groin pain together, so pubic, adductor, etc. Um, do you have to stop uh, training or playing in order to get rid of the problem? If you flag it early enough, by and large, you don't. Um, so often a, a, a 20% reduction in training load will be enough while in parallel. And I, I mean, a lot of the time, they tend to reduce their training load anyway because they know that makes them feel better. Mm-hmm. But a, a defined 20% reduction in training load while assessing the high-speed multiplanar movements that they say provoke them and intervening in those movements on a weekly basis should see. It may not be the quickest way to get from A to B, but while maintaining participation in season. And it's interesting, a lot of the times players will tell you that they don't find matches are the hardest thing at all. They find training sessions the hardest. Those small-sided games, those two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four, you might change direction 50 times in, 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 ten, you know, in five minutes. I might change direction 50 times in the entire game. Um, and so if you can identify the highly provocative activities, if you can reduce their overall, uh, whether it's your high-speed running or your, or your total running volume by X percent, but let's say 20% as an example, and in parallel, you've identified all the mechanical reasons why they're becoming symptomatic. And if you're changing those reasons or the, the tests are improving on a week, not the pain provocation test, because you reduce load, you're going to feel better, or you should feel better. But if your metrics on how they move are changing on a weekly basis, you should find that for a, for a reduction in training load to 80%, their symptoms improve week on week on week. And then when they get to pain for you, you can start to reintroduce uh, full training load again. However, the majority only, only present to us or often only put their hand up in the, within the club when they can't get out of bed the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they'll say, you know, how long have you had this problem? Uh, to be honest with you, my groin has been a bit stiff and sore for about six weeks. You think, Why didn't you tell us six weeks ago? Like it, it goes back to, you know, the real challenge in working uh, in elite teams is that players want to keep playing or, or are incentivized to keep playing until they can't, uh, or most of them are at, at any rate. Um, and so 
trying to educate them that you know a stitch in time saves nine and that if you're proactive and again it's and again it's again with the lens it's always the ones that have been previously injured are the quickest ones to get on top of things really quickly whereas your younger athletes keen to make an impression don't want to step back out of anything um, I wouldn't necessarily skeletally immature but load wise immature in terms of what the training history is and maybe the coordination of mechanics and some of the compound lifts and running and change direction mechanics they're the, the ones that need to be putting their hand up the quickest not to step out of training but to keep modifying things and making sure they're being proactive are often the last ones to do it so just coming back full circle is there anything we can do to prevent athletic growing pain is there anything we can do to identify it like you say the early ones are the ones that should be flagging it up rather than waiting the six weeks until the cat get out of bed is yeah. there anything we can do on a monitoring screening side of things to to flag that early for them yeah i think you you can there's several strategies you can take um number one is who are your high-risk groups so your athletes with previous groin pain are more susceptible to groin pain and those coming back from longer-term injury, ACL, ankle fracture, syndesmosis, whatever, <clears throat> and your younger athletes come into the squad. I mean, if you could pick the three buckets, they're the, they're the big three buckets. Um, within your overall playing squad, um, Christian Thorberg has a really nice paper on um, the squeeze test at zero uh, and a, a, a traffic light system around that, um, which will, you know, where the squeeze test at zero is, is really useful is that it is a good pain provocation test. It, it really loads, especially in the long lever, really loads the area. So it doesn't tell you where they're sore. It doesn't tell you why they're sore. But often they'll become symptomatic in a zero squeeze at zero before they report pain when they're playing. Um, so that can be quite proactive. Um, and thirdly then is, uh, <clears throat> again, not only as part of your, your, your uh, athletic development, but your hamstring program, your ACL program, your, your patellar tendon program, screening your athletes on the big movements. So, you know, how they change direction, how they look when they're running and sprinting. And, you know, are, are the group trending in the right direction? So at, at the end of the season, you know, are you happier with the overall average of your group's mechanics doing those activities than you were at the beginning of the season? And um, particularly in, in academies, you know, if you're a player in, in the academy for, for three years, take rugby as an example, um, or, or the collegiate system in the US, uh, if you have them in the system for, for three to four years, how do they look walking in the door and how do they look walking out the door? Uh, and obviously that's a huge, usually weighted from a, a technical and a, a tactical point of view specific to their sports. But biomechanically, how do they look? Um, knowing that you know, their efficiency when they run and their efficiency when they change direction is going to have athletic benefits and certainly going to have injury benefits. Um, so I think trying to pick out those those high-risk uh, athletes and doing a really in-depth analysis in them while monitoring the entire group and having their mechanics trend forward, I think are probably the, the, the best approaches. Um, it's, it's just having the, the skill set within yourself as a clinician in private practice in the club or within the club department to have the skill set to carry out all, all, all components of that assessment in that if an athlete's repeatedly pulling their hamstring running and I, I don't know, I never look at their running mechanics and all I look is their hamstring strength. It's not that hamstring isn't strength is important. It's incredibly important, but I can pull my hamstring and still have strong hamstrings. So it's, it's the same around groin in that if I have a narrow assessment in what I can 
look for and intervene on, that's going to limit, you end up with far more outliers. When in fact, you know, the outliers are what I crave now because are they, are they something, you know, is there something specifically wrong with them or am I missing something? I'm always missing something. And so it really broadens and evolves your assessment in terms of, of how you, you break that athlete down to profile them, to put them back again. And so um, how, whether it's as a team, each having various skills within the department that can, that can assess each of those components or individual uh, clinicians who can do it all, um, it, it, it's a key uh, aspect to, to getting ahead of the problem, staying ahead of the problem. Awesome. Well, we're coming up to an hour and I kept you for an hour and a half last time. So I think that's a good place to uh, to round up there. But we mentioned it in part one. If there's anyone that wants to reach out, chat to you about anything we've chatted about today, any of your research, any of the work at the um, SWAT surgery clinic, what's the best place? Where's the best place to be able to yeah. contact you? Um, so the, the, on social media, uh, on, on uh, at end underscore king, I think it's the same for Instagram, but I mean, on Twitter, that, that's what it is, uh, or www.end-king.com. Um, all our research is on um, the sports surgery clinic. It's on my website, but the sports surgery clinic website as well. And uh, all our growing papers are in, um, we have a systematic review and, and three uh, uh, clinical trials all in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. So you'll find them all, all, um, all up there. Awesome. I know not in the current climate, of course, but as things start to get back to normal, is there any planned workshops or anything like that you're getting out and about or was the was australia the the, the end of it for, for now no i i had quite an extensive uh, travel plan oh. um, across um across europe and the, and the u.s for, for for the rest of summer i think but um like all things you, you're away for a couple of weeks and you're glad to get home you just didn't think it was going to be <laughs> as yeah. home for as long but um it's uh, look at we get everyone healthily through this and get their jobs back and and, and get everything going there'll be a uh, there'll be uh, hopefully a, a good opportunity to, to, to travel afterwards. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for a part two. Appreciate for you, you jumping on and, and giving up two and a half hours of your time, probably more given the technical issues. But um, yeah, thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Not at all. Keep up the good work. Thanks very much, Rob. Thanks, pal. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to episode 288 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Ender. So a big thanks to Ender for lining up another episode a week after the first part discussing ACLs. Uh, I know it's, uh, we've got a little bit more time on our hands, but I know time is precious with, with family uh, commitments and whatnot. So really appreciate his, his time. So also a big thanks to Athlete Monitoring, to Omega Wave, I Measure You and Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys. So I really appreciate their support. So make sure you push subscribe on your chosen podcast player. Got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks from guys in America, in the US, to guys in Oz, and obviously guys here in the UK. So I hope you're all well and staying safe, and I will chat to you next week. <laughs>